you can now hear Movie Heaven, Movie Hell on Stitcher. Stitcher is radio on demand. Listen anytime, anywhere. Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all your favorite shows, plus discover from 20,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows. You can also create your own custom playlists. Stitcher is available on iOS, Android, Nook, iPad, and in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and it's on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory. You can stream your favorite podcasts from Stitcher. Don't have Stitcher? Download it free today at stitcher.com or in the App Store. And please leave us a review and rating on Stitcher. Thank you. Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles, and we are both independent filmmakers that enjoy talking about other directors' work. And uh, we're currently on our second pass of the alphabet, uh, looking at directors out there. Um, so we are on letter B uh, currently, which obviously, as with many of these letters, there's a lot of options we've got everything from bergman to bay <laughs> uh i know we talked about at one point we talked about um talking uh, john borman as we've mentioned him on a few podcasts and i know uh personally I've, I've always kind of also been interested in like kenneth branner from a sort of director stroke actor point of view but um what we also realized is is you know we want to be uh, as diverse as possible on this. And one of the things that we hadn't covered in any of the first pass was any w- women filmmakers. You know, we looked at those and there was obviously one in there that was, of course, very influential for us uh, as well. And that was Catherine Bigelow. So today we're going to look at the work of Catherine Bigelow. And we are indeed. Uh, she's uh, well known for uh, for doing action films as uh, some people put it, you know, a, a woman in a man's world. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I must admit, I mean, you know, looking back over a sort of body of work for this, um, you, you know, it, it did bring up a lot of memories and a lot of stories, um, as these things always do. But, uh, yeah, certainly out of the, the, the women filmmakers out there, she's, she's always been big on the radar. Uh, of course, she has also sort of set some records in the fact that she was the, the first woman uh, to win an Oscar and win a BAFTA uh, in 2010 for the, the Hurt Locker. Um, de- deservedly so, I would say. And uh, but but yeah, she's got quite a varied body of work, body of work out there. And as obviously, you, you know, been involved, she, she gets involved at quite a technical level as well with her filmmaking which i'm sure we'll uh, we'll cover as we go through this it's, it's it sounds wrong doesn't it when you just say she was the first woman to win an oscar and a bafta for best director i mean it's mm. just oh it's terrible isn't it I it's mean, very yeah. terrible <laughs> yeah i mean we're, we're not condoning that we're, we're actually saying we we um that, that 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 we you know we support it and uh we're glad that she did but yes you are you are absolutely right when you think of the uh you know the the history of film um 
you know, there are still, even to this day, uh, not enough female voices out there, not enough female directors. And, um, you know, there are some very good ones. Catherine Bigelow is in a handful of, of, I guess, well-known female directors out there. Again, not very many. You know, we got through an entire alphabet without even mentioning one. Um, So uh... (laughs) That's right. I mean, when we were looking for the second series, we we said, well, we want to include more women directors. And there wasn't many on the, you know, like, say the list of famous directors or directors you may have heard of because i'm sure there's more women directors out there than that list was giving up oh undoubtedly undoubtedly and also you you know it is fair to say and i've said this before you you know know, this this podcast um it, it is very personal to the sort of films that we had exposure to growing up and you know have been sort of present in our lifetime and, um, you, you, you know, to, to be fair, Catherine Bigelow is probably out of all of the female directors. She is probably the one that I'm I personally am most familiar with the work of simply because she has dealt with a lot of topics that, that you know, were, when I was younger were, were of interest to me, uh, quite frankly. You know, those those types of films. And, um, uh, you know, it's interesting to see her. Um, she she's got sort of more more notable acclaim later in her career when when she started dealing with I, I guess more um, uh, more sort of grown up and important subject matters you know thing things like you know obviously the Hurt Locker dealt dealt with you know uh, the Middle East as as did Zero Dark Thirty both yeah. of which were collaborations with writer Mark Boll. So um, that's kind of interesting that you you put that sort of, uh, you know, differentiation, uh, you know, deliberation between her work, because she's she's more known for the work she did in the 80s and 90s, which, you know, include work like Near Dark, Blue Steel, Point Break, Strange Days. And it's funny how it's kind of like from what you were saying there. And it's true because I was looking at her body of work that um, her earlier work seemed to be of a uh, more of a popcorn nature i mean dealing with genres like um horror and action where in her later career now that it's been a lot more serious a lot more concurrent yeah yeah well i mean it's it's kind of interesting cuz cuz that seems to be the case with with quite a lot of um quite a lot of directors we sort of grew up with and and we've talked about on this podcast um you, you know in in quite a lot of cases they sort of uh, you, you know the the obvious one that springs to mind is like Clint Eastwood for example um you, you know he was always very well known for his his sort of action movies and more sort of popcorny type stuff but obviously in in later years he's he's as he's got older he's he's um you know, you know, developed into uh, dealing with with more serious and diverse subjects, but uh, but yeah, it is interesting. It yeah. is interesting. Well, before we before we move on, I just want to ask: Do you think it's a case that the the it was what they had access to, or what interested them? That's that's a really good question. Um, I, I think I think possibly as the the more the more you do, and the more you get taken seriously, and the more, if you if you like, you become um, successful. Uh, I guess that does in turn perhaps open up a a wider palette for you to explore more more sort of diverse uh, possibilities. Because 
uh, you, you, you know, because you've got that sort of track record, as it were, and, and maybe things that are more personal um, to, to an individual, they, they, they can start to bring in. But it, but it might also be, in fact, it's probably a little bit of the both, actually. It's, it's probably more as you get older and as you grow up and as you reflect on life more, um, you know, maybe you do get a bit more serious or, or your, your views change slightly. I, I don't know. It is, it is a very, very interesting, uh, interesting phenomenon. And I, I don't really know what the answer to it is, to be honest with you. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, well, I, I kind of agree with it's a bit of both because at the end of the day, unless you're the uh, originator of the story, if you're the one who finds the story and wants to make it, it's a lot of the time your approach to make it via the studio. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm not quite sure if Catherine Bigelow, you know, went out and found the Hurt Locker or she was offered it. So it's... Yeah. It seems it, it can be a case that uh, the longer you're around, you know, that the the more serious projects are offered to you. I mean, yeah. it's 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 really weird. I mean, there's there's no hard and fast rules when it comes to Hollywood. No, you know, there there could be a director who literally makes one short film and then the next film he's handed is like a you know hundred million dollar film, and you're like, ah. Uh? Yeah, <laughs> and then there's there's others who have worked their whole life making low budget films, and then you know, and then suddenly there's this point where suddenly the the gates open for them, and they are allowed to you know to work to direct these big budgeted films. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly in Catherine Bigelow's case, which we will come to as we as we go through this, I know there was um you know a passion project in there that uh, that that she very much wanted to do that wasn't so successful. So you, you I, I wonder which one that was. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you, you know, it, it is interesting. I mean, um, you know, what I often enjoy about all of this is is I I talk very fondly about um, you know the good old days uh, back in in film school in 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 the mid to late nineties, and um, I remember we had a uh, we had a class which was in our first year. Um, which was called Intro to Film. And it was much more of a, it just dealt with cinema and the history of cinema and the history of filmmaking. And uh, it was more of a sort of theoretical class before we started getting into the practical stuff and actually making films, um, which was more in the second year. And um, I remember I had a really interesting uh, teacher. He was fantastic, a guy called Dr. Farr. And um he, he was a really interesting character, massively passionate about movies and, um, you know, introduced me to, uh, you know, through the class to, to a lot of things. I mean, we watched everything from sort of James Wells, Frankenstein, uh, Double Indemnity, Chinatown, um, right up to it's the first time I ever saw the Coen brothers uh, Fargo was okay. in his class. And um, the reason I bring this up in relation to Catherine Bigelow was there was one class exercise that we had where he had a list of films and and you have to forgive me i don't remember exactly what was on this list of films but he wanted us to eat, um each pick a film and basically do a presentation on the film and in that presentation try and see what it wh- why he picked this for for the list okay and on that list was actually near dark um oh, right. by catherine bigelow which I picked. In fact, I think I was actually the only person in the class that picked that one because there were, again, I, I don't remember the exact 
list, but there were some more sort of usual expected suspects on there, if you, if, if you like, on, on that list of films. And um, uh, I, I, I watched it and enjoyed it thoroughly and, and uh, you, you know, did a did a presentation on it, which he obviously thought was quite good because I remember I got an A for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was more the reason he had picked it is because it had kind of subverted the um, vampire genre slightly from what audiences necessarily expected at that time, you know, in 1987. Um from from a vampire film and um you you, you know it is uh, i mean it, it's not one of the picks today but it, it is it is uh you know a really really good film i know i know we've kind of mentioned it before on this podcast haven't we for various reasons yes. yeah. <laughs> i think about having the cast of aliens in it perhaps <laughs> <laughs> i also have the cast of aliens walking past a billboard that says aliens on that's it, so. right yes yeah. i know i know we mentioned it yeah. for some particular point but yeah so right. um you, you know, um, so Catherine Bigelow, f- for me, has, has kind of been there all the way sort of through the journey, really, of, of, of um, y- you know, uh, wanting to become or becoming a, a filmmaker and studying film. So, um, yeah, when, when we were looking at the uh, the strong female directors out there, she was certainly uh, cer- certainly an easy choice. Yeah, I mean, um, big influence on me, especially with Near Dark just because um, Near Dark was one of the influences on Blood and Roses. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I I actually recorded a podcast uh, for film work uh, talking about Near Dark in quite, uh, in quite length. So um, if you want to listen to that episode, uh, I actually have it on the independentrunnings.com website. Oh, just if, if you okay. just look at podcasts and scroll to the bottom you will find you'll find it there you'll find the the, the film work entries all right well i for one will be listening because i would very much <laughs> like to hear about that certainly yeah, yeah. well i obviously i'm a fan obviously yeah. i'm a fan and uh it was so funny because um the first trailer i shot for well i cut for uh, blood and roses the music i used was a track from uh near dark and it f- it fit perp perfectly right absolutely perfectly the timing and everything and i didn't cut to it i just placed it onto the cut onto the the trailer and it just uh, it worked so effortlessly but i mean i'm also a big fan of uh tangerine dream mm-hmm. so yes. um i always i for a long time i had um a track from um risky business uh, for my showreel which mm-hmm. was from tangerine dream yeah I know that was very much their time, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I I didn't realise how late in the game um, Miracle Mile was because I I went back and watched that recently. And Miracle Mile came out at the end of the eighties, right? When it's a film that when you watch it looks very much from the mid eighties. Yes. Yes. So no. I was quite quite surprised by that quite surprised because it came out at Sundance the same year that um, Sex Lies and Videotape came out. Right. Right. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, on one of these podcast extras at some point, we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk a bit more about Blood and Roses because, um, you know, I, I've, I'm, I'm sure I've got some questions for you on that one. And, um, you, you know, we, we should look at it at some point, I think. Um, yeah, it's it's overdue, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's, it's overdue now. Like it especially now, <laughs> it's it's out on release on Amazon Prime. So. Yay! Good plug. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it was uh, only available in the states for a long time, and now it's available in the UK. It's available in Japan, and it's available in Germany, and still the US through Amazon Prime. So, you know, there's no excuses now. If you've got an Amazon Prime account, you can watch it. Just if you look, if you search for Blood and Roses. Or blood plus roses, uh, you will find it on there, and, uh, and a lot of people have so far. So um, you know, oh, good, yeah, good, yeah, good to know. There's life still in it. That's that's that's. I know it's it's really weird because we're coming up to like ten years since I've shot it. <laughs> wow, don't they don't they go by quick? Yes, they do. They do indeed. <laughs> they do indeed. <laughs> And of course, one day soon, I might finish Modern Love as well. So, well, yes, let's 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 hope so. We we I I know I know we're, we're all going to get we're going to Fright Fest, and then we'll say, oh, next year we've got to have a movie in there, like we said in that <laughs> podcast. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. someone who, who yes. doesn't need to enter a movie in there is Catherine Bit and Bigelow. <laughs> there we go. So, uh, and then of course she did. Um, Oliver Stone produced uh, Blue Steel for her, didn't he, back in uh, 89? Um, That's right, yeah. Which, uh, which uh, you know, I think I, I've not seen that in years, but I think I quite enjoyed it at the time, if memory serves. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it continued the uh, collaboration between her and Eric Red, who wrote Near Dark, so... That's right. And I, I certainly remember the advertising for it. I, I mean, the it's very much... Um, there's a Akira Kurosawa film called Stray Dog, which covers the same um, idea of of of, cop, of a cop who loses their gun, oh, right, and then okay. has to try and find it. And but in that film, it's more about his search to find the the gun, less so about the person who's using it. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Or or, or Hollywood cinema somehow links back to kurosawa <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah in some sense i i think cinema does eat itself it does eat its own tail mm. because it it's constantly going through ideas and you know churning them out as something different or or the same or so mm. yeah i mean but then akira kurosawa he was influenced by westerns you know so yes yeah so it's all circular it's yes, all circular indeed. yes yeah. And 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 talking about thing thing things, uh, you know, be, being uh, influenced and made into something else. That's quite a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Okay, so we're going to get into our picks for uh, movie heavens. So, as uh, Keith so, you know, skillfully. <laughs> <laughs> well, there. more luck than judgment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> He steered the conversation this way. Keith, what is your pick for Movie Heaven? Okay, well, um, you know, it, it was tricky because overall I don't really think Catherine Bigelow as such has done a bad film. Um, there are some that are not so good, but uh, I, I think she's an incredibly competent filmmaker and I like a lot of her movies. But um, I just thought for this one I'm going to go for something fun. And mm. uh, so I've picked 1991 Point Break. <laughs> starring uh you know an action crime thriller starring patrick swayze and keanu reeves um yes. uh you, you know this one was a lot of fun um 
I remember, you know, first going to see it. It was just one of those films that left me with a big smile on my face. Um, you, you know, it, it's it's funny, actually, because, you know, we're saying about um, paving way for other things. And I mean, I, I kind of, you know, Point Break's got your sort of criminal surfers, if you like. But um, I often think it was it was, you know, massively influential for another guilty pleasure of mine. Um, Fast and Furious, the original uh, with, you, you know, the now late Paul Walker and Vin Diesel, where it kind of took the same idea as Point Break, but made it about street racing. And um, yeah, I have to I have to say, I mean, it's 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 fun, you know, that you, you're saying that it's, you know, a lot of fun. But uh, I was going back and watching it again recently. You, you just realize what great craftsmanship's going on. Yes, because it it all builds on it, and it also takes its time. Um, I've not seen the remake, but one of the things I've heard is that they just they just concentrate a lot more on the the extreme sport angle of it. Totally, yeah. I mean, the the, the remake, and I mean, you, you know, obviously remakes and reimaginings and 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 those sort of films. They, they they often get ragged on a lot. And sometimes I think, particularly if there's a big enough gap, um, you know, I do actually feel there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, reimagining films if you bring something different to it and if you do a different twist on it or whatever. I mean, we've talked about this, I know, in some length on other podcasts. But I have to say, I mean, I know it was 25 years later that this remake came out, but oh, my God. You know, it is a poor remake. Uh, I went to see it and it just it just lacked it lacked, lacked all the charisma and style of, of, of Catherine Bigelow's film uh, very much. You're absolutely right. It does focus more. You know, it's not just about surfing surfers. It's more about extreme sports in, in general. And I know, of course, in the original Point Break, they dealt with the skydiving uh, stuff as well. Um, and this, you, you know, in terms of photography and everything, it films all these extreme sports really well. But in terms mm. of holding that together with the story and these the, in interesting reimaginings of these characters, it really doesn't do. And it, it, oh, it okay. does. It takes the same plot um, and the same characters and, and, and just sort of, you, you know, brings it up to date. Lots more tattoos. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it, 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 it really was, uh, a poor comparison. Um, and of course you've got, uh, you, you know, in the Gary Boozy role, you've got, uh, Ray Winstone and I have to say he kind of phoned that in somewhat. <laughs> yeah. Ray, Ray seems to do a lot of stuff for the money these days. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he's done some wonderful stuff. Don't get me wrong, but in this, mm. <laughs> Well, I mean, but get back to my point. I mean, the thing I love about this original is that it, it is sort of it's very organic. So, you know, so you have you get these two cops put together, one older, one's younger. And the older one has a theory about who these, you know, bank robbers are. And so they follow that. And then you sort of see him learn to surf. And then as he starts to learn to surf, he meets other surfers and then gets accepted into like a clan. Who you know, and then that, and then it you see that friendship grow, and then when you you know, spoiler, uh -huh. and there's going to be plenty of spoilers in this one. Oh yeah, yeah, but these are oldish films to be. Yeah, fair, but so, I yeah. mean, <laughs> the the thing is though, when you're watching it, you don't think for a second that these guys you know 
are the actual um, ex-presidents, this gang of uh, bank robbers who are very successful at robbing banks. So, and then once once you sort of they realise who each other are, then you know, and then it just it carries on, and you you just see them, you see this sort of tight knit group fall apart, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing: the the characterisation and and the the um, relationship between these characters does work extremely well. I mean, up, up until this point, I guess Keanu Reeves was kind of best known as being, you know, uh, Bill and Te- Ted. He's Ted, isn't he? And Bill He's and Ted, Ted. yeah. Whoa! Yeah, whoa, excellent and all this. But, you know, he, he, he'd been kind of known for that. And this was obviously, I mean, he'd go on to, you know, with speed that we've also talked about, um, you know, to, to, to become this this action hero kind of guy. But um, yeah. uh, but, but but, you know, it, his relationship with Patrick Swayze and Gary Boozy in this film, um, you, you, you know, it, it really works. And you, you 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 do care about these characters. And obviously we've got Laurie Petty playing the uh, the love interest um, in this film with him. And and yeah, it, you know. It, it does. The story works. Um, it's nicely played. You know, the 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 acting is is of a okay. You know, people. I know people laugh at Keanu Reeves, but I mean, he, he for this for this role, he's he's fine. He's he's yeah. great. You know, he's in good shape. Um, you know, he learned he learned to do a lot of the surfing himself, and and actually. Uh, apparently still surfs to this day off off the off the back of this film if if you believe what you read online um, but uh, <laughs> but yeah but yeah i mean the, the other thing the other thing that I'll, I'll be honest um kind of attracted me to the film uh you know back in the day when i first saw the poster for this um was the fact that uh you know it it, it had james cameron down as as the executive producer on it and yes. of yeah. course um Apparently, he, he did quite a bit more than that. He was actually involved in, in the script, uh, but couldn't get a credit for it because of um, some WGA um, law or, or, or argument with them or something. And uh, it would it would be a WGA ruling. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it was also, I, I believe, involved somewhat in the edit as well, although he's not actually credited for that. But um, but, you know, at the time it was kind of, you know, I, I, I was as I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about at some point, uh, a massive James Cameron fan. And, um, you know, the fact that his name was attached to this when I saw the poster was like, oh, I need to see that. That looks awesome. You know, so and it was. (laughs) Well, I saw this film off the back of the trailer, Mm -hmm. seeing it at the beginning of another uh, video rental. And I just the the trailer was really good. And you just went, oh, I really want to see this. This looks fun. And it was it was great fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean it. it it's just, it, it's all it's it's one of these things where the casting just really works in this film because it everybody has great chemistry with everybody else. So you got the relationship between uh, Johnny Utah and Pappas, which are the two um, cops, the partners, and that works really well. And then you've got the relationship between Johnny Johnny Utah and Bodie, which is the Patrick Swayze character. And then you have the relationship as well between Johnny Utah and Tyler, which is played by Laurie Pay. And they just they just work and feed off each other really well. Yeah. And everybody has that moment to shine. Yes. 
And of course, there's an, a, another actor in it who, you know, I think really good, who plays part of the game gang is James LaGrosse. Oh, he's fantastic. Yes. And of course, uh, he's a um, Catherine Bigelow brought him on because he had like a bit part in uh, Near Dark. That's he right. Played, he played the uh, the young lad in the, the bar, the one who runs away. Yeah, oh no, James LaGrosse is a great actor anyway. And um, yeah, no, uh, this this does, I think in terms of a an action film, uh, this this kind of delivers and, and works on, on all those levels. Um, uh, it, it also, of course, as, as many things do with me, it does bring up a little story as well. Um, when, when, I, when, when I was when I was living in uh, in Florida, uh, going to film school, we worked on a, uh, uh, a feature called The First of May. I think I've mentioned it before. It starred Julie Harris and okay. um, the stunt coordinator on this uh, was a guy called Glenn Wilder who um, he was living in Florida at that point because I think uh, he was working on the TV show Sequest DSV, which had moved to Florida at that point. Oh, okay, and, yes, I remember Sequest. Yeah, and he, he, I mean, he's done stunts on, on loads of films, loads of big films. You only need to IMDB him. But he was actually, he was the stunt coordinator on um, uh, the 1st of May. And I had to go over to his rather nice, uh, you, you know, um, uh, home to, to to pick up some film stock or something. I can't remember why it was now. I know I was I was um, an assistant director on it and I was sent to do some errand just prior to a shooting. And I went over there and um, of course, you know, uh, yeah, he, he knew pretty, pretty early on that I was a fan of some of his work or, you know, certainly some of the films that he had worked on. And he was indeed, you know, the, the stunt coordinator on Point Break. And I remember he kind of, he was obviously somewhat flattered or whatever, but got a bit carried away. So he whacks Point Break on and it's the, um, it's the chase scene where Johnny Utah is chasing um, one of the ex-presidents in inverted well, it's, commas. It's, well, it's, it's Patrick Swayze's Patrick, character. Although, yeah. although it actually wasn't because he was there promoting Ghost at the time. So oh, it was okay. a stuntman with, the, uh, with, the, with that mask on. But yes, it's supposed to be chasing Bodie. And um, Glenn Wilder did the, um, uh, what was the, a pogo cam rather than a steady cam, but the, the actual chase for it. And I remember he put it on and he actually talked me through. It was like commentary, but he was stood right there. He talked me through every single shot, you know, from the, the dog being thrown at him, you know, to the going over the fence and the, and the whole thing. But uh, but yeah, that was that was pretty cool to get a sort of um, personal audio commentary for that particular <laughs> section of the film but again it was great stunt work i mean that was that was yeah. what i know obviously patrick swayze did a lot of his um the skydiving himself because it was one of his hobbies and um obviously the the you know the surfing uh you, you know is fantastic in that film and all of the chasing and the and the gunfights and, and everything it really really does work and uh, I have to say unfortunately you, you know the the remake uh, if you haven't already seen it then I, I would say don't bother because it's yeah. it, it is a sad disappointment after this uh, this great film <laughs> well that chase scene's the same chase scene they use in um oh fucking hell I just it, it, I had it on the tip of my tongue um What's the Simon Pegg film? 
Oh, uh, Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz, yeah. Yes, yeah. So it's the uh, ch- chase scene they're watching in Hot Fuzz, the one they actually copy. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what I also like as well is that um, Patrick Swayze's character, Bodie, recognises Johnny Utah as being a uh, football, uh, you know, football player, American mm-hmm. football. And he asks him why, you know, he didn't go pro. And he said he busted his knee. Yes. And in that chase scene, you actually see him bust his knee. You know, he he sort of, uh, you know, hurts himself, you know, and just brings back that old injury. And then for the rest of the film, he's still got that injury, which is a lovely touch because usually in a film that that is the excuse, you know, oh, I, I hurt my back. I, you know. I busted my knee and then it never affects them in the rest of the film. They can run around, jump over things and there's no effect. But yet in this film, you see him actually injure himself again. The old injury comes back and it's, it's a marvelous little touch. It is. It is. is. And it's one of the things, slight spoiler, but it is one of the things that they, uh, they do change in the remake is uh, his backstory and his ghost is slightly different. So he's, he's not right. a, uh, he's not a football player that, that, that has an injury. He is in fact, you know, always an extreme sports guy that, that loses his best friend uh, during a stunt. Um, oh, right. okay. uh, but, but yeah. And again, not as effective because you don't really have that sort of payoff later in the film like you do in, in, in this yeah. version. And so. also the fact is that he is uh, just doing his job. He's an FBI agent. Mm. He's not doing it for any other reasons, but apart from, you know, trying to nail the ex-presidents. Yes. So it, it comes from that point of view. It's nothing to do with some sort of personal tragedy or, you know, it's just... It's just a, a, you know, a guy who's just, you know, what's, what's um, the, the, the sergeant say? Um, oh, we got young, young, dumb and full of cum. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In fact, he's great as well. That's um, John C. McGinley. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who plays, you know, he plays that off to a T, doesn't he? <laughs> in fact, that's a great shot because that's a, that's all done in a wanner, isn't it? that that bit when he when they're first walking through the um you know the fbi building and he's talking to uh keanu and you know he's saying about he takes the skin off chicken and all that stuff and um yeah that that's that's all rather nicely done (laughs) well he is the new face of uh, the fbi Mm. yeah (laughs) but no it's it's a great film i mean i know lots of people know it um and of course you know hopefully i'm hoping it'll gain more of an audience because i'm hoping people will if they've seen the 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 not very good remake i have to say that that, that might want to go back and revisit the original because um you know this really is uh this really is a decent action crime thriller and um and really works so i i thought yes let's 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 go with one let's go with one that's a bit of fun <laughs> so <laughs> there you have it <laughs> uh so yeah it's um it's well worth checking out and as i say um a bigger influence on uh, Hot Fuzz to the point where they parody some of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as I said, and it's been an influence on, on you know, other things because I really do feel that, um, you know, Fast and Furious, which is quite an amazing franchise now, but I, I you know, the, the sort of roots of it starts with a very similar basic 
premise basic setup and um you know you know for what it's worth i think they're quite fun movies as well such a shame such a shame about paul walker but um yeah you know yeah that's 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 happening way too much these days but uh yeah yeah roll on 2017 i say yes yes this year's just been a bummer Mm -hmm. (laughs) well Speaking talking of, of years. Talking of years, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can probably guess what my pick is, can't you? Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, my pick for Movie Heaven is the uh, 1995 Strange Days. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Which, um, oh, it's, oh, it's such a great film. And... I think a lot of people are sort of starting to realize how how good it is. Mm-hmm. So again, this was one I watched on video. Uh, I missed it at the cinema, and um, the 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 thing I well, one of the things I love about it is the fact that you have what these kind of POV shots, and this is to do with the experience people have using these uh, squibs or squids. Is it squibs or squid? It's squid. Yeah, it's squid. It's squid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the main character of Lenny Nero explains what the uh, what the the letters stand for, but it's this tool that was uh, designed for the police so that they could uh, gather evidence, and uh, got onto the black market. And uh, there was many other applications you could use. And the idea is that when you put one of these things on, you step into the shoes of another person. So to kick things off, we get to see a bank robbery and you experience it beat by beat. And it's as amazing. I know it's several shots cut into one, but it is it, it plays as one shot. Yeah. And it's just it's just amazing. So it starts in a car and then they go in, they rob a restaurant and the police turn up and they try and make a getaway. And the guy takes takes a fall off the roof. And you actually see like the, the sort of the 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 cutoff point. You see him, his point of view of hitting the ground, and then we are introduced to our, our main character Lenny tearing this thing off and like you know, in shock that um, that his friends trying to give him a um, a death tape. I think he calls it something else, isn't it? Like blackjack or something like that. Well, yeah, yeah. He he, he says he says for God's sake, you know I don't deal in snuff. i have to say an excellent performance as well by um ray fines in this film i mean it's very different to anything else he's really done you know certainly before or since and um well yeah because i mean to think he came off the back of schindler's list to come and do this yes yes so you had him as like this really horrible nazi i mean you know nazis are bad to start off with (laughs) but he was just like a level above yes and to sort of play this character where you know he's he's bumbling he's romantic um he's a you know he's a bit of a sleaze i mean he he's peddling what's more or less like a drug mm-hmm. and he's also the fact he can't get over a previous relationship yeah um, this is this is the whole thing about this film is it's to do with memory and with the the squib you can oh, sorry squid you can relive memories, which he does, because he was in a relationship with uh, Juliette Lewis's character, Faith. And for whatever reason, it, it, it ended. But 
Lenny just couldn't get over it. And of course, this makes him blind to any potential other relationships, you know, friends, people in front of him. Because he's stuck with these memories. And um, so the counterpoint to this is Angela Bassett's character called uh, Mace. And she's, you know, she lives in the real world. She's a um, bodyguard, driver, you know, gun for hire. And, uh, you know, she very much lives in the, the real world and doesn't um, doesn't appreciate what Lenny is doing. But but also because she's a he, he's a friend. She looks out for him, even though she doesn't approve. And so what you have is you have several stories interweaving with each other. The main story is about this, the killing of um, Jericho 2K, who's this black rapper who also does a lot of good for the community. It's kind of weird looking at the news to, you know, <laughs> lately with what's been going on in the States with, you know, with the amount of cops shooting black people and the outrage that's happening, that this film is kind of timely in that sense it's really it is that really well i mean when this film came out it was more to do with rodney king mm -hmm. yes it was yeah and the the, sort of the la riots and what effect that had on the populace and it's kind of weird that you know you know over 20 years later and we're still dealing with the same problems yeah it's just it just seems to be on a grander scale now yeah i mean yeah. Th this is the thing there was the la riots but you didn't actually have people taking out cops that you do in the current situation. Yeah, no, it's, it, it is. It's, it's, it is bizarre that, uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've not moved on in any way, have we? It's uh, if anything, we, we've, we've gone backwards, but um, you, you, you know, th th this film, uh, unfortunately, this film was, was a, was a bit of a commercial flop, which mm. um, is so you know certainly watching it now it, it, it's so unjust because it, it really is a, a, a wonderful bit of filmmaking um it's very interesting you know it deals with all sorts of themes you know you've got racism abuse of power rape voyeurism you know all of those things packaged up in this and it, it, it's all done very tightly um i mean it is fair to say sort of just because of when it was set. I mean, it was made in 95, but it was supposed to be set on New Year's Eve 1999 to 2000. Yeah. So, of course, it's dated. Um, the other thing is, uh, you, you know, that on the squid technology, uh, it's essentially recorded onto what is mini disc, isn't it? Which, again, <laughs> kind, of, kind of dates it slightly. Well, um, yeah, back then, mini disc was the future. It was, yes. But... Um, but, you, you, you know, uh, I think the design of the film, like like the, the, the wardrobe and, and, and the look of the film, um, you, you know, is, is very well done, very distinctive. Mm. The, the, the performances, like we've already said, we had Rafe off the back of Schindler's List. We had Angela Bassett off the back of, you know, What's Love Got to Do With It? The Tina, you know, Turner story thing. Juliette yep. Lewis is in there. We've also got Tom Sizemore. Who, got... who we saw in a small part in Point Break. There you go. Yes, absolutely. Yes, there you go. Um, but, you know, and, and the other thing, the other thing that um, I know people now would really take for granted, and, uh, you, you know, you, you've already mentioned the the, the, the wonderful opening um, POV shots, which uh, essentially was four shots over a four-minute opening. But 
the, the thing now is, is we take that for granted because we've got things like, you know, GoPros and, you know, all of this technology. But there is actually a very interesting hour long uh, lecture that Catherine Bigelow does. I think it was possibly to the London uh, at the London Film Festival, but it, it's 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 done as a uh, a commentary track on um, some of the Blu-ray and DVD releases, where she spends an hour basically going over that opening four minutes, and it really is quite remarkable because. Obviously, this was shot on 35 mil film and um, they had to develop. They had to spend, I think they spent three years developing that opening sequence because it involved not only a um, camera operator and a focus puller, but it also involved a stunt person who was essentially being whenever you see the, the right arm, that's that's a stunt man. When you see the left arm. It's the camera operator. But they also had to develop the pogo cam to have a um, head mounted rig, which would allow which would have a video tap on it, which would allow the cameraman to see what the camera was recording. Because, again, a lot of people nowadays take for granted. But when you were cranking film and running film cameras, you, you would have to have your eyepiece up to or your eye up to the eyepiece to see what you were shooting um and you, you know it does seem so laughable now but it, at the time in the mid 90s that technology just wasn't available and um when you look at the the painstaking uh choreography and the you, you, you know the way that that shot that opening four minutes was planned i mean that really is a piece of remarkable filmmaking um you know aside from the fact that this is a great story and a, with good acting and a in a great film all around i mean it really did sort of push the envelope at the oh, time i mean and the next one pushed it even more because they were on roller skates mm. when you see um lenny play uh playback uh you know one of his memories with faith and they're on roller skates and so obviously and you see the 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 cameraman or the stunt man or whoever's you know working with this that uh they fall down you see their, their legs go up and everything so yeah you know you had all that um i think i want to sort of go back to kind of because i didn't go into what the second story line was because i only just mentioned the the killing of uh not jericho 2k but jericho one sorry yes and um the other storyline you have is that somebody is um is sort of following lenny and leaving him recordings that they've done. And they, the first one he gets is off the killing of this uh, pro prostitute called Iris. Uh -huh. And then it leads into, you know, that the fact that he's been to his home and all this kind of stuff. This guy is, you know, you know, is real bad news. And they, the, how they sort of weave the two storylines together is that um, the Tom Sizemore character, Max tells them as you know gives them this idea that it's actually the police who are doing this so the idea is that the jericho one killing and this sort of psycho is like it, it's working you know it, it's the same people and of course it doesn't turn out to be that case it actually turns out to be dun 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 <laughs> Max himself who's doing it so but i mean it's it, it's again it's really well done because um 
how they do it is because Lenny's is very protective of faith and he believes that faith could be next at the end when he turns up at that hotel room and he sees a body and there's a, a another envelope with his name on it and he he watches it you think oh my god you know faith has been killed mm-hmm. but it turns out not to be and it's just it's so well done and you just sort of and, and, and once his fear, fears have kind of been realized they've actually happened to him he doesn't care for her anymore yeah he kind of realizes that whatever they had was long gone he really didn't know her either. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, again, um, in terms of technically, very, very well done because you have that whole sort of mirror sequence, mm-hmm. which, um, you, you know, they had to sort of go back to some old school uh, <laughs> special effects to, um, to, to to make that work. Um, but yeah, yes, I mean, no I, CGI removal in this film. Exactly. It was pre that. But I mean, y- y- you know, it, it is actually... Um, I think in many respects, an absolute crime that this film did not do well because uh, it is so it is so brilliantly executed, well acted. And the story is really interesting. I mean, again, we're mm. back to James Cameron, aren't we? This was we are he, he actually wrote this and uh, well, he, wrote the, he, he came up with the story and uh, he wrote the screenplay with uh, another writer called Jay Cox. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I believe at this time that um, this is when Cameron and uh, Bigelow were actually married. Yeah, yeah, they were married, I think, 89 to 91, I think. Oh, okay. I, I, I don't know. I know, I know she was she was between, uh, oh, it was between Gail Ann Hurd and Linda Hamilton in terms of oh, okay. James Cameron's <laughs> many wives. Oh, of course, yes, that's <laughs> right, yes, because uh, he started dating hamilton after terminator 2 so that's right yes you'd be correct yeah but, uh, but uh, obviously i mean you know bigelow always says that they you know they, they they remained great friends in fact interestingly that year 2010 when she was up for the oscar she was um uh head to head with him uh in terms of the nominees because he was up for um uh it for uh Avatar? Avatar, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, you sure it's two thousand ten? Sure well, it was two thousand eight. Two thousand and nine was the film, but it was the two thousand and ten Oscars, I believe. Um, I think I'm right there. I may have got that wrong, but uh, talk amongst yourselves. I don't know. I'll have a look. <laughs> um, but any, any, anyway, well, I mean, Avatar came out sort of. It might have been. I mean, it's it's funny that IMDb's got uh, the Hurt Locker as 2008 and avatars 2009 mm. might have been the 2009 oscars all right it was the we we can i can i can double check that right now because it should say about her wins Da-da-da. oh yeah 2009 yes you're absolutely yeah. right my bad yeah 2009 yeah. <laughs> uh it was the uh what would have that have been the eighty the eighty second I guess Academy Awards well, that or that I wouldn't know yeah, I don't, yeah. I, but, I don't um, keep up to date on the how many uh, I, I have to say I'm, I don't really follow the Academy Awards no, no, I mean no. I've never I've never been a big one for sort of staying up and watching the uh, awards ceremony I mean it's always it's always kind of interesting to say well you know you, you sort of predict who the winners are going to be and most times you'll yeah you know, it tends to be you can pick them. Now, I mean, it was interesting that she um, 
like they usually do she won the academy award she won the bafta and she won the golden globe award all in that year you know so yeah. um yeah and deservedly i think but there you oh, have yeah. it in Very fact it's, so. it's interesting because Catherine bigelow does seem to keep her her um personal life quite quiet because uh beyond the james cameron marriage i have no idea whether she's ever remarried or whether she has any children or anything because it doesn't seem to uh to be anything about that online but uh which and nor, nor should it be because that's her private life and that's nothing to do with anyone else but there you go exactly. <laughs> so exactly. um but yeah so uh but, but yeah the, the film strange days is just um it is a masterpiece and uh uh you, you know as i said it is because of when it was set uh you, you know it does i suppose somewhat date it but yeah it still doesn't it still doesn't stop it being a fucking awesome film <laughs> it does now i have to ask did you watch the uncut version oh i didn't know there was uh i didn't know there were yes, two versions there is. okay there are but, uh in the uk it was uh cut by a few seconds and that is the um the scene where Iris is killed. Right. Yes. Which is pretty nasty. There's, yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a bit more nudity in the uncut version right. than there is in. Well, I have to say, I got myself again. This is this is a little little um, DVD minefield stuff here, but uh, I, I got the 20th anniversary that so came out last year, uh, German Blu-ray edition, simply because it's a two-disc edition with the most extras you can get. Now, sadly, I was hoping some of them would be sort of retrospective uh, documentaries and stuff, but they are actually, all of the extras on it are from when the film was made. So they're, they're vintage um, extras. You get deleted scenes, interviews, uh, behind the scenes, but you also do get that um, wonderful hour-long uh, commentary on on the opening shot, which is... Uh, I, really interesting um yeah. you know from a filmmaker perspective really interesting right. question for you <laughs> yeah what is the difference between a steady cam and a pogo cam right um she does talk briefly about that apparently the pogo cam is a stripped down version of the steady cam because she said what had happened was the steady cam was too smooth uh it, right. it gave so it didn't get whereas handheld was too jerky. So she was right. trying to find a balance between the two to try and best simulate uh, what our eyes see when we when we move and when we run and when we go up a flight of stairs. So what they did is they um, they stripped down the the steady cam rig to a a, a a pogo cam, which is like a monopod essentially oh, okay um and that's about as much as i know it's got a gyro <laughs> at the bottom and all that sort of stuff but it, it, she said it was to um the, the the point of it was to just try and better simulate um okay. a person's movement than you would with either handheld or um or full-on steady cam it sounds like a glide cam it's what what we use a lot now with uh, digital SLRs. Mm -hmm. So you have like a, a handle, which is the gyro, and then you have a stick with the weights at the bottom of the stick. Sounds very similar. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, she called it, of course, you know, technology. I mean, since that 20 years has moved on massively. Um, well, you but... say that, but the Glycam is actually technology from 10 years ago. It's just that the cameras were always too heavy for yes. it. Yes. Or they were just not the, the right weight. You can... Uh, I've, I've 
I, I remember when I first started, you get these sort of steady cams, which used to be like a handle on a ball. Yes. And trying to get this thing just to, to balance and then stay still was a major ball ache. Now you can get them and you can, with a digital SLR on them, you can actually use them. They're actually usable. They, they seem to come into their own now. Yeah. So well, tech that was designed, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, are coming coming to the fore now. Yeah, well, interestingly, she even does talk about this. I mean, bearing in mind this is 21 years ago she did this lecture. She does talk about high def. And mm. she said that uh, at that point, the high def cameras were so big and so heavy that it just wasn't practical. It was easier to use. I, I know we sort of laugh now, but ironically, it was easier to use a 35 mil, um, you, you know, stripped down camera than it was to... Um, to try and uh, you know embrace any any high def technology on there, and, and and you know and interestingly, I mean we mentioned Point Break and and the remake, and I know a lot of the extreme sport photography looks fantastic in that film. I mean I have to give credit where it's due there, but um, you know apparently some of that stuff was was literally achieved on a on a you know on a GoPro. <laughs> so god god have things changed you know it's it's, it's yeah. incredible <laughs> I, i'm sure you the whole thing wasn't shot on a GoPro, no not the whole cause... thing bits no, of it no, no. certain bits shots of it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah gopros tend to get used um for very sort of close-up shots and stuff i mean if you remember michael mann used these kind of they look like wands actually with cameras on them so that in ali when you get like these, he was using the ones like punching. So you actually right. see like a, a point of view of the fist. But when, but when those shots came on screen, you could see the quality just absolutely drop. But for a shot that lasts for about a second is moving. It's fine. Yeah. But for something that you want to shoot like a whole story on one of these things, it's not there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I owned a GoPro and I actually, I sold it because I just, I, I wanted to do things with with it that it it wasn't quite up there for, and that was to shoot a whole story with it, kind of point of view. And it just, for me, the quality wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's fine. It, it uh, not to sort of talk down about, it, but it's it it's good for certain things for the extreme sports, for you know, you see most motorcyclists with them on their helmets all the time now, and for that kind of stuff, it's fine. But if you, I just felt personally that the quality wise it, it just wasn't there yeah and it just wasn't smooth enough now i would actually probably go with the uh, dji um, osmos yes that's a if very going to shoot something because that's because it's got a gyro on it i mean this is the problem is with these new cameras is that um the wobble factor it's called rolling shutter but it, it's the wobble factor it, it makes the image look like it's you know having a, a hissy fit yeah <laughs> or there's an earthquake going on it does turn the image into jello yeah and it's it's just one of these side effects of having uh chips that are, are you know shoot really well in in low light and give you that that film look but they're you know again every year they're working on that and they'll get to a point where you can shoot one of these cameras handheld and you won't have rolling shutter but it's it's taken a while because heat is always a factor with these cameras. Yeah, amount of cameras I've used now where overheating tends to be a problem. So, well, no, I mean, I mean, thing. you know, she um, this lecture is quite interesting because, as I said, you, you know, you hear even 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 little things that sort of 
aren't aren't perceived as a problem now, but but were 21 years ago. Like she was talking about the fact that um, you know, they they looked at Super 16 and they were going to originally have the 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 dream record, uh, not the dream recording, sorry, the <laughs> the uh, squid recordings uh, be in a you know different format. But she said the problem with that is you know they were trying to sell this idea that this captures life perfectly, you know, in in mm. that definition. So they didn't want to. Have a, have a different film grade and and lose lose a generation and lose lose quality there. But she said by the same merit, she had to film all of this in two thirty five to one aspect ratio. Which she said when you think about it, that's not really how we see. Uh, but she said at the time, um, the movie theaters weren't equipped to deal with more than one aspect ratio as well during a film, which obviously you know can can be sort of dealt with nowadays. Um, you only got to look at Wes Anderson films, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's not that they can't deal with it. I think it's just it's more accepted because it it was always a case of that if you watch one of those films in the cinema, the 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 curtains doesn't change at all. They just pick one aspect ratio and that's it. Yeah, and it's just the size of, and then on the screen you get the 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 black bars. We we did a similar thing with the short film I've just done actually we 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 use bars we changed the ratio but but yeah you're yeah. right it's it's what audiences would have accepted at the time um, and uh, you know it's it's very interesting to hear just how much thought um, and experimentation uh, and planning went into that and uh, you, you you know she talks very well very eloquently about the process and she's you know she's she's. She's a real switched on lady, this one. You know, um, I, I'm very impressed with this film. And uh, I really do, you know, for anyone who hasn't seen Strange Days, if, if you happen to be listening to this and haven't, haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a long while, um, you know, I implore you, go back and, and, and check this film out because it's really fucking good. <laughs> yeah, and really good in its original aspect ratio as well. Yes. I mean, you lose a lot on the on like when it came out on VHS when it was just pan and scan. So you did, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, certainly yeah. on those. And of course, they they had to also um, develop. It's fair to mention as well for the actual jump for the stuntman's jump, they had to develop another camera which was actually part of the helmet, uh, but was attached to a rig that they set up above so that. So he could safely jump with the camera, but when he fell down onto the the airbag at the bottom, you, you know the, the the camera wouldn't crush his head or break his neck or anything. <laughs> so yeah. so again, yeah. again you, you know, just just the the level of you know detail around you know safety and timing and all of that stuff with this is just just remarkable, remarkable. Um, that's why we call it movie magic. Indeed, indeed, movie magic. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't look like anything on screen, but to, to see the behind the scenes, the amount of effort and, you know, equipment they had to use to achieve that. That's when you go, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it was um, it was. It, yeah, it is. It is a great film, you know, but it, it's not just it's just not 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 just what they did with the technology, but it is the actual story, the acting, everything, everything about it. It's all around good. And it is it is it's such a shame they were robbed that it wasn't um you know it wasn't successful um sadly <laughs> yeah uh i have to say just uh i always slightly found the the dates of it kind of confusing because it says it starts uh the day before uh new year's eve uh -huh. and but it, 
it, it's kind of like you have to think about it for a second because it starts at night and then it goes day, night, day, night. <laughs> and you think, wait a minute, how can that be? But then you sort of realise it's probably about one, it's probably like midnight the day before. Yes, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you you get the whole early morning, and then into the day, into the night, and then I had to think about it. It was kind of confusing because it comes up with the date. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And you're going, wait a minute, what? Wait a minute, shouldn't like the day he wakes up after the the, the opening sequence shouldn't that be New Year's Eve? But it's it's there's there's kind of like there's no time. There's not like a you know a sort of a clock to say what time it is yeah so there's not like a 24 ticking clock in there clock. no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and i there's there's a shot that they used um i think for the trailer i mean i've certainly seen it in the poster and stuff of lenny on a big screen you never actually see that in the it's film. a deleted scene it is in the deleted ah, scenes it's right. it's it's it's, yeah. it's part of where he tries to crash the party and right. um he actually steals a uh it was probably deleted because it was a bit weak in some respects he steals a pass from the media guys but he, oh, okay. he goes up and so they get to in front of the camera so he is seen on the big screen and yeah. they're distracted and he sort of whips the pass off them which um maybe that's why it doesn't end up in the film but you're right they used it for all the marketing um, they did, yeah. for, for obvious reasons but of course you know they had to set it over more than one day so that uh ray fines or let lenny nero would would get to uh to wear more than one one of these wonderful costumes that they've got him in in this film. <laughs> <laughs> and such a wonderful selection of times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did like the one sort of comedy line where he goes, oh, this tie doesn't go with blue. <laughs> you know, there's all this <laughs> chaos going on. And, you know, they've just like escaped near death. <laughs> uh, lots of comments about uh, about his ties. I mean, Max even says, "Was it Lenny says to him, oh, I didn't realise you were colourblind. He says, well, how do you think I put up with all your ties these years? <laughs> uh, anyway, we're going to move on. Yes. Um, we're going to move on to our movie hells. Uh, so uh, join us after these messages. Kane, the stone cold assassin. Three men. Corbin Taylor, Zeke Jones, and Jesse Williams were held for questioning by Marshal Gazer. His revenge will be swift. Ain't you the law around here, Sheriff? Nowhere to run. No place to hide. Jesse, you ever meet Kane? The new violent and bloody horror short from director Mike Tank. Red Wolf Pines. Is that what you told? Luke. He died like the dog he was. Starring Keith Hines as Kane. That bastard ain't gonna find us out here. Available on YouTube and official website www.apocalypticconservatory.com Red Wolf Pines. Rated R for Rowdy. So, you're making a film. Horror film. Meta horror film. A horror film about horror film. Horror film about cinema. And why would you do that? Life is so beautiful. You just have something in your eye. I thought you said you wanted to do something different. Why do the same thing that everyone else is doing? It drive me mad. All have opinion on everything. Nobody listened to me. Nobody tried to understand anything. Just too much. 
I found out recently that I had a, a syndrome when I was younger. When I try to go to sleep, the whole world will change. Like everything will go too quick, too slow, or too big, too small. I could control it. Benny Loves Killing. Available now on Vimeo and IndieFlix. And if they don't go for it, you'll kill them all. What's the matter, Jane? It's kind of hard to explain. I can't put my finger on it, but there's definitely something wrong. Jane? I suppose we can't expect her to get over it just like that. It won't be past this. So, so bright. Why is it so bright in here? It's just the dawn, Jane. You have to take her to the hospital. Have her placed under constant watch. That much I know, but who'd done it? Don't even try and stop me. You know I'm going to harm you, yet you do nothing. What about that wonderful husband? Oh, Martin. I love him. Well, someone has to die. Available now on Amazon.com, on DVD and video on demand. And we're back. Uh, so, Keith, uh, what is your pick for movie hell? Yeah, well, okay, for movie hell, I mean, like I've already sort of said right at the beginning, I don't necessarily think Catherine Bigelow's done any bad films as such, but she certainly have done a couple that haven't worked. Um, Obviously, uh, well, I'm gonna disagree with you because I think your pick actually is a bad film. And I will, okay, yeah, I'm gonna give you some good. I'll give you. I'll give you my reasons. Oh, that's why, good. But, uh, that's what we want. Yeah. that's what it's all about. Yeah, but yeah, but uh, when well, there was a bit of a gap uh, because Strange Days, um, sadly, wasn't uh, a commercial success. There was a little bit of a gap for her next film, which was uh, in 2000, and it was uh, a film called uh, The Weight of Water. Now, the reason I chose this as movie hell was simply because I'd seen the movie when it came out. Uh, obviously, Catherine Bigelow film. I wanted to go see it. Uh, it also had, you know, some, some um, you know, good actors in and wanted to see what was going on here. Um, but I completely forgot everything about this film. It, it, it definitely did not stick in my memory at all. So I went back and visited or revisited it for this uh, podcast. And it is one of these sort of part mystery, part historical films. And I think uh, it actually doesn't work because it's one of these films and they seldom do uh, work that's trying to take place. Uh, there's, there's two plots going on. There's, there's a contemporary plot and there's a historical plot. And this is basically, uh, th th this was adapted from a novel of the same name by uh, Alice Arlen. And um, it 
Sorry, no, it wasn't. Alice Arland did the screenplay. Sorry, Anita Shreve did the, the did the novel, <laughs> The Weight of Water. Sorry, my bad. All those Anita fans out there yeah. will be screaming, screaming at your me, name. screaming at me. No, she did the thing uh, called The Weight of Water, and what it what it was the historical part was based on the uh, Smutty Nose Island murders of 1873, which took place in the Isle of Shoals, just off Maine, um, where some Norwegian immigrants. Uh, that, that, that move across to um, the, the States and, uh, you, you know, try, try and survive as, 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 as uh, fisher people, fishermen um, off that coast. Uh, there, there, there's, there's a murder that happens. Uh, it involves, well, it involves, actually, I was, I was surprised, a really young looking uh, Kieran Hines was in it. You know, he's a great actor. But uh, I almost didn't recognise him to start with because I thought, wow, he looks super young there. Uh, plays a character called Louis Wagner, who's um, uh, found guilty of, of the murder of uh, three, oh, sorry, two, two women, uh, as I said, on that island one night. And what you've then got is you've got a uh, contemporary part of the film, which... Um, stars uh Catherine McCormick as a uh, a journalist who is 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 going on a trip to to this area to to the um Isle of Shoals uh to investigate this to 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 do an article um about these murders and uh uh she she's she's a photographer very much a, a visual artist uh that's going and she's going with her husband who is um played by Sean Penn who's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, poet. And um, they, they're basically meeting up with his brother, which is played by um, Josh, Josh Lucas. Lucas, thank you. And uh, Josh Lucas's girlfriend, which is played by the lovely Elizabeth Hurley. <laughs> and mm, No, uh, charisma vacuum, Elizabeth <laughs> Hurley. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> she's 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 just there for eye candy i felt oh my god she's <laughs> such a bad actress yes <laughs> you know it it, it it just goes to show that she had a career off the back of that one photograph in the press where she was wearing the uh, louis vion uh, dress which was you know literally had her tits bursting out <laughs> i mean i'm not being catty or anything but it just seemed to be she just didn't bring anything to the story no, no. Well, she's 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 kind of obviously she's the um, the latest squeeze, the latest girlfriend of of um, uh, Josh Lucas's character. Uh, but she she's also a little bit of a uh, uh, a fan girl and has and has somewhat of a flirtatious crush on the um, Sean Penn character, uh, much to the annoyance of and rightly so of, of his missus. And of course, she's. Uh, she she spends most of her time on this um, on this yacht that they're on, uh, you, you know, in very skimpy bikinis. <laughs> well, Elizabeth Hurley does, uh, uh, not so much. Catherine oh no no no, no 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 Catherine doesn't. And I mean, it's Catherine. Um, we're sort of told the, uh, the the story. Well, the the contemporary part of the story was was sort of told very much through through her eyes. Um, Whereas we've got this, uh, you know, you know, eighteen seventy three uh, story with the um, with the Norwegian women, and essentially you've basically got uh, um, 
I, I'm terrible on character names. I can't remember the names of the characters, but you've got uh, the, the 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 main the main uh, woman that's come across is is essentially uh, a housewife, and she's there yes. to, uh, to 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 feed the men and clean the home. I mean, we are talking 1873 here, guys. Um, but uh, you, you know, she works very hard, and she finds out that more of the family are going to come across and join them, um, uh, and she has to make room for in this home. And uh, one of one of which is her brother and his new wife. And we learn through this this uh, this film or, or through this story that there was uh, when. When she was younger, there was some incest involved um, between her and her brother and the fact that she, well, she still she still clearly loves her brother, but not not in the right way that she should love her brother. <laughs> so, of course, there is there is some jealousy uh, towards the, the, the brother's new bride. OK, so this deals a lot with this whole film deals a lot with jealousy because you've got it both in the contemporary story and and in the um in the past story the problem is neither of them really mesh or meld well together now i i feel you're itching to say something simon so i will shut up a minute and let you say your piece (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah sorry i can kind of hear you bursting on the other end there like (laughs) uh, i can't see you but i can hear you and i'm you're you're just thinking keith take a breath shut up too much information let me say something so i'm gonna shut up and let you speak <laughs> well the first problem i have with this film uh you just sort of talked about the the incest side of the story um it, it i was this weird thing that also people who take part in incest are lesbians as well <laughs> yes. which i i really can't believe that they sort of made that connection it just really seems stupid i i could understand the jealousy part yeah and okay fine so uh sarah polly's character has a relationship with her brother and you can okay okay and she's sent away from the states because this was discovered by the elder sister who's kind of like the matriarch of that family that's correct so she's married off so that you know that her wicked ways won't um you know that she'll be cured of it somehow and of course, when her brother turns up with the new bride, who also finds out that she's pregnant, which Sari Polly's character cannot get pregnant. Um, oh, actually, yes, I failed to mention a really good plot, po- a really important plot point. There. Yeah, yeah but I mean, that plot point in its own was enough. We didn't need the, the, this kind of lesbian liaison and then being caught again by the elder sister that s- sparks this off. Yeah. So you, you've got. So you've got this period piece drama, which I think personally on its own would have been all right. Yeah, I think it's the stronger of the two halves. It of the is film. the stronger of the two halves. But the problem is straight away, you know who the killer was. And you know that, um, is it Cian Murphy? No, Cian Hines. Yeah. Is, is innocent. And, and so there's no mystery to it. I mean, I, I knew straight away that, that the person who was in the dock accusing him of this, the only person who who was there, the only survivor, person, yes, <laughs> the only was was the guilty person. There was just no mystery, so you have to sit for this thing and wait for it to go on. And then on the other hand, you've got this really tragic, really 
oh, just sort of horrible, you know, present day scenes where everything's kind of set up by voiceover. You have uh, Catherine McCormick's character give this voiceover where she states that we didn't know that we were going to die. And you're like, what? Okay, that's left any kind of suspense out. I, you know, you're just sort of waiting for that to happen. Well, also made no sense. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to sit through this whole, oh God, they, they like spouting poetry. Yeah, yeah. To each other. And oh my God, it's just, it, oh, you have to sit for this thing. And it's just like, oh, please hurry up. Just, just get on with it. Because this film did not need to be two hours long. Yeah, well, that was the other thing. I mean, I think there oh. was definitely some pacing issues here. Um, the The other thing that was a bit weird about this, I thought, was... You had, which at the time were, were kind of more your your star actors in inverted commas in, in the contemporary part of the film. However, yeah. as we've already mentioned, the more the more interesting half of the film is actually the period piece. And um, and interestingly, you even look at the poster and the poster and everything to the marketing for this film was all about, yes. all based entirely around, you know, Sean Penn and Elizabeth Hurley and, and essentially the, 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 the modern day cell boat, you know, and, and, the, and the contemporary side of the story. So um, it starts off with that. I know. But, you know, you kind of it, it kind of sets it up to be something different to what you actually get um the other thing that's that's obviously weird as well is you've kind of got flashbacks within a flashback which i'll i'll give her a due she did that in black and white to try and make it a little bit less confusing structurally those bits but no um, it wasn't black and white i think you're confusing the because every time uh, Catherine McCormick takes a photograph it goes to black and white it, it's all in colour well they have the bit I mean they, they have the murders bit in black and white that's all done in black and white you know no it wasn't it was well the version I saw it was all in colour really I don't remember there being a black and white bit though I don't believe I don't remember there kind of being a black and white flashback Okay. And I just watched it. All right. <laughs> I literally finished it before we did All this right. podcast. Okay. Well, so you've seen it more recently than, than me then. But okay. But anyway. I mean it would make sense. I mean that's the that's the norm for a flashback, yeah. isn't yeah. it? To to have it in black and white because then you know, oh it's a flashback yeah. or it's a but dream of course sequence. you had flashbacks. That, that was the thing. You kind of had you had the flashback to the eighteen seventy three story, but then you also had the flashbacks within the eighteen seventy three story mm. to the to the to the murder stuff so you had kind of several things going on but what 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 really didn't work with this and i don't know whether this is down to the 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 scripting of it um was i just felt like particularly when you got to the end and they started sort of cutting between the the two time periods more that that didn't work at all it just didn't gel together and um i you know hence why i think this is in my opinion, her weakest film because oh, uh, it's hell, it's very yeah, weak. Because... it's very weak. But I, I also get the whiff of studio interference. Right, I really get the whiff of it. I think when she gave them her cut, they didn't like it, and hence why we get this really clunky voiceover. The voiceover doesn't make any sense, and it just it, it lays everything up front, and so. You, you you know what the hell's going on and oh it, it's just you know high you know 
and, and, you know, and she talks about her kids and stuff, which never play any part in the story. And also the ending's bloody confusing. It is, because yeah. yeah. Well, Elizabeth Hurley goes over. Uh, Sean Penn goes over, I think. Yeah, where well, he dives in to get her, doesn't he? Yeah, Catherine McCormick goes in and yet yeah, they somehow rescue Elizabeth Hurley and Catherine McCormick, even though you see Catherine McCormick go, moving away from the boat. Yeah. I mean... She's dragged away such a far distance. There's no coming back from that. Yet she's still rescued. And I didn't even realize. I was like trying to think. So, okay, I got to see Sean Penn. So obviously he died. Yeah. But I didn't see it. And nobody said anything about it. They all sort of looked a bit lost and sad. And I was just like. Yeah. Well, and of course, and of course, okay. uh, you know, um, as Sean Penn likes, I mean, Sean Penn's you know, very, very cool in this, but as, but as he, as he likes to do as well is, um, you know, he's, he's got his whole sort of tortured poet thing going on simply because we have a bit of backstory with him as well, that his, um, uh, he actually killed one of his, his girlfriends in a car accident when he was very young, which was apparently what inspired him to, to start writing this series of poems. And these series of yeah. poems are the things that Liz Hurley you know, got all excited about and, um, you know, had this like crush on him for. And, uh, and and of course, you know, the Catherine McCormick character always feels like the the, the girl he killed was was the true love of his life. And, and yeah. you know, she was I mean, there, there, there was, you know, there was intention. There were these things there. But um, yeah, it just didn't, it didn't play out. And they, they, they clumsily try to do this sort of whole jealousy thing where, uh, Catherine McCormick may have slept with uh, uh, Josh Lucas, you know, and it, but but they, it, it's just yeah, it's so badly done and so it's weird in a film that's two hours long, it's rushed. Yes. So yes. It, it, it's just it, the the pacing of it's so weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, with this and this one, oh. she it was produced by A. Kitman Ho, and um, obviously, you, you know, this this was this was after. Um, uh, Cameron was producing her work by by this period. He he sort of moved on to do his things and and um, but y- you know it's interesting you say about was there um, uh, inter- studio interference and I think because Strange Days and wrongly so you know had been such a commercial flop a commercial failure then then yeah quite possibly um, you know this was her next outing quite possibly there was a lot more. Um, in interference i really don't know what's interesting is i tried to find out more information as i always do with these things i watched the film the film you know didn't have any any extras on it at all it was just the film and i tried you know googling um to see if Catherine bigelow there were any interviews with her about this film and there's very little out there to find out no, more I... which is kind of interesting so um you know, maybe, maybe yeah, this is one telling. that she wants to forget about as well. Who knows? Because she never seems to talk about when she does talk about her body of work in, in various interviews. This one never really seems to get a mention anywhere. So um, but yeah, you, you know, I'm sure I'm sure the novel itself is actually I've not read it, but I'm sure it's quite interesting because, I, you, you know, I could kind of see that there is something here in terms of you know, bringing a, a historical story that, that's a bit of a mystery and, and, and sort of framing it with this this um, modern day, uh, 
you know, drama with four people, which obviously involves jealousy and, you know, similar themes and all this. But it didn't it didn't mesh together in this film at all. Um, it no. just that no. it felt like two different movies rather than, you know, one movie uh, very well put together. And, you know, well, one story informing the other, because I am. Um, I always love what they did with Godfather Part Two. Yes, and the fact that you saw the rise of um, of Corleone of the the Godfather, and then you saw the fall of Michael. Yes, so you had these two stories, you know, interweaving with each other, but not only informing each other from a point of view of seeing how the the family came into power and how the family was falling out of power. Mm-hmm. So two opposite dynamics, but working together while this it was very sort of loosely connected i mean she uh, as i say i the audience was very much ahead of this story i i I knew exactly what what was gonna happen on the uh sort of the historical part very early on so my interest in that was kind of like well, well okay let's see what happens but the I found that to be more interesting compared to the modern day stuff. Mm-hmm. The modern day stuff just seemed to be up its own ass. <laughs> yes, yeah. Seriously up its own ass. And it's just like, uh, I just was waiting for them to get back to the historical stuff. So they could have had like a good hour, you know, thing there. And they could have, if they started it off just, you know, without the, the trial or the murder at the beginning or, you know, and it, and you sort of seen this happening as you know as you know in a log you know um a chronological order and then you see you know this poor guy putting put on trial that it would make more sense it would actually be emotionally a lot better than you know going well we know what happens we'll, we'll have to watch we'll see it yeah yeah is it is it going to be any different no no and in and in no. the contemporary part i mean you kind of you know, you kind of have some empathy and, and sort of connect with Catherine McCormick's character to an extent, but the others don't really, you know, even even the likes of Sean Penn don't really bring anything to the table yeah. particularly. Um, you don't, you, you know, he, he, well, he, he just comes across as quite un, arrogant and unlikable, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Josh Lucas doesn't seem to do anything at all, really. It's, it's like... Um, you, you, you know him, him and Elizabeth Hurley. They are like the couple that are just there to be pretty. Um, mm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, 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 I just sort of felt, as I said, I had forgotten all about this. I'd even forgotten it was in Catherine Bigelow's resume. And when we <laughs> when we looked to pick a movie, Hell, I thought, oh well, I've totally forgotten this one, and that must say something. So yeah, went back to yeah. watch it and I realized why I'd forgotten about it is there was potentially a something interesting in there, but it didn't quite mesh and it didn't quite work as a as a complete piece. Well, I think it because they were just too uh, faithful to the book. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because in the book, you can delve into feelings and, you know, you can talk about them in great length, mm-hmm. you know, in prose. But on a film you know unless you kind of really heavily delve into that it doesn't quite work it it needed it needed to be like the book being used as a source and then try and do something a bit more different yeah 
instead of trying to just follow the, the book. Yeah, 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 I, I, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I've not read the book, but from what I can see is uh, it, it doesn't deviate in terms of the story and, and the characters. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I just, you know, it's a bit underwhelming. Um, you know, I'm sure... I'm sure Catherine Bigelow approached approached it, you know, in a very competent fashion. I'm, I'm I have no doubt. I mean, uh, but yeah, the, the final product just doesn't really doesn't really gel and doesn't really work. Um, and it's a shame because I think it it could have been interesting. I think it had sort of potential. It just didn't quite work in the way it was structured. And who knows? That could have been. Any number of reasons. It could have been studio interference. Who knows? I don't know. It just, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't very good. It wasn't, it wasn't up to her normal standard of work. No. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> we head back out into the waters. Yes. <laughs> Seem Catherine Bigelow and water just does not mix. <laughs> Even though Point Break has a lot of water in it. So maybe that's not true. But... <laughs> Uh, it seems after 2000, Catherine Bigelow and Water just didn't mix. There you go. Anyway, uh, my pick uh, for Movie Hell is uh, the 2002 film K-19, The Widowmaker. Now, this film sort of was the sort of the last of the submarine films we had there for a while. So, uh, you know, it kind of started off with The Hunt for Red October and we had Crimson Tide and then we had like U571 and we had that piece of crap called Below that we talked about yeah. <laughs> on our David Tui web uh, podcast. And obviously all stemming back to Das Boot, which was which was the sort yes. of benchmark, I think, for Mark, yeah. sub films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I read like recently that you do not call it Das Boot. You actually say Das Boat. Oh. Well, there you go. Even though it's spelt boot, but, uh, it, the, the actual proper pronunciation is boat. So does boat. Wolfgang Peterson, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, based on a true story and, you know, should have been should have been quite a, a tense thriller. Actually, just was meh. Yeah, this this so. Uh, the, the story is about uh, the the sort of Russia's first nuclear submarine malfunctions on its maiden voyage, and it seems to be from a whole. They they didn't spend much money on it. It seems they they cut costs on this ship, and this is one of the reasons why it's it sort of you know they had such problems. Also, the fact that they had a real problem keeping crew because uh, they hit, a lot of them were either being fired or being knocked over. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it just stems from the fact that when they christen the ship, the bottle doesn't break. So straight away, the the sailors believe it's cursed. And yeah, which as the audience member, you're going, well, that kind of takes, takes the suspense out of it, really, then, isn't it? There's not going to be much of a surprise. Yeah, I thought that was actually a bit heavy handed. Because, mm. you, you, you know, yes, the, the champagne doesn't break on the bow, right? And we all kind of get that. But what really annoyed me is they had that uh, Russian, you know, shipmate guy go, oh, dear, 
we're cursed. And I sort of thought, yeah. oh, come on, it didn't need that, did it? That was that was really spelling it out. I just thought that was a bit heavy handed. I was like, it doesn't need that. Come on. <laughs> Give us some credit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I tell you what, that Russian fleet, they're really stingy. I mean, <laughs> the fact that they gave them um, fire equipment instead of radiation suits, um, you know, most of the things didn't work on the boat. Um, they couldn't find a a proper sort of engineer to run it. They gave them a student. And uh, it's just... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's a... It's a bit of a trudge, this film. I mean, you, you know, it's again kind of like it's about two hours. And that's and the running time's that long because we get a, a touching scene at the end where you get a whole lot of actors in old makeup. Yeah. Well, Liam, Liam Neeson and uh, Harrison Ford in old makeup. And then you probably How have, they look uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of close, isn't it? No, uh, Harrison Ford doesn't have glasses, but... Um, uh, well, I, we should we should actually call him Harrison Fordsky because he they they all do Russian accents. Well, yeah, that was the, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah, I mean that was the other thing they didn't do the sort of Valkyrie stroke Hunt for Red October, uh, you, you know, type thing where they chose to just ignore the accents, but they they sort of put on these faux accents, which is yeah. which is a bit daft anyway because in reality they'd be speaking Russian. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was a bit distracting. Well, I, well, I have to say though, I think there was they did mention uh, Sean Connery's accent in Hunt for Red October, not the fact that he was a Scotsman playing a Russian. Sure, I'm a Russian submarine captain. <laughs> Red October standing by. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure, this is your land, America. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, in films like yeah. Hunt Fred October and Valkyrie and whatever, they just kind of, um, you, you know, let yes. it go and, and ignore it. Whereas in this, they do t try to address it. But yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a shot where, the, you know, the camera moves around and they, they're speaking Russian. And then as it passes them, as they cross the screen, they're suddenly speaking English. Yeah. So it's, it's a well and trusted way of doing that. So, yeah. And, you know, you because the thing is it's an american film so americans don't want to sit through watching subtitles throughout the whole film so you have to you have to sort of do that um change it to english otherwise you know you're not going to get as many bums on the seat as this as if it was subtitles which is sad but unfortunately that's the american market for you yeah and also um i believe the actual uh russian community initially wasn't they had to make some changes, I believe, because they weren't happy about the way some of this was portrayed. I'm sure I read that somewhere. Well, I mean, the fact that uh, there's this whole... Um, so they kind of they kind of go into sort of Crimson Tide uh, territory where you have the captain played by Harrison Ford and his, um, his executive officer played by Liam Neeson. And Liam Neeson's character is originally was the original captain of the, the ship and he was replaced by Harrison Ford because taking too much time building this uh, new submarine because Liam Neeson was kind of being reasonable, you know. Yeah, I, I just was expecting that scene where he goes, chaps, it's a nuclear submarine. Maybe we should be a bit more careful about it. But there, there wasn't that scene. He was kind of, you know, you could tell that people were unhappy that he was being uh, replaced. But 
he kind of wasn't fighting it you know he i guess was kind of happy not to have that responsibility taken off his shoulders but but there comes a scene where the crew kind of rebel after they have their accident which is um it's, it's a water leak so the, the the core is exposed and is overheating so they have to come up with this um solution of of um sort of redirecting the the pipes from their water system into the nuclear reactor and of course this means guys going in there for 10 minutes and getting radiation sickness and of course unfortunately though there's no way of doing this without you know without the core being exposed somewhat to the to the rest of the ship so everybody's getting sick on this they're all being exposed to radi radiation and um so so a couple of the crew you know they mutiny and uh they want Liam Neeson's character to sort of take over and you think he is and then he turns on them and it's like no you're not proper Russians and all this stuff because they want to because there's a an American cruiser nearby and they're they're offering help and of course the Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson are sort of fighting back and forth of whether or not to get the Americans to help but of course if the Americans help then they get to see the submarine and yeah learn its secrets and they they they, they would be the laughing stock of well Russia also well. bearing in mind that this is in yeah. 1961 this takes place so it is right in the sort of height of the cold war era as which well. again you don't really get the sense of that there's no there's no sense of that really uh as as an audience member you're you're going well why don't you just let the americans help you you don't really get the sense that of the the cold war you know it's not like how see Crimson Tide does this very well. It 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 sort of it starts off with news footage saying that there's been a coup in Russia and that this mad general's taken over and his forces are trying to get the the launch codes for the missiles. So straight away, you know, you know there's a tension going on. You know there's problems with this. You have no real contents um, of what's going on in the the bigger world. You you just know what's happening with the ship. And it seems it, it's just it was a, a wrong way of doing it. Mm. Yeah, you needed a you needed a bigger, you know, idea of what was going on at that time. Yeah. because the film doesn't provide that. If unless you're sort of, you know, know about history and what was happening in that time, you really don't get a sense of that threat. Maybe they wanted to sort of concentrate more on the crew and their tragedy, but. But then you don't get a sense of because then as an audience member, you're kind of going, come on, just let the Americans help you. You're in real bad shit here. We can see that. Everybody can see that. Yeah, it almost makes you wonder, actually, whether they were because this was this was definitely one of um, Catherine Bigelow's passion projects. Um, okay. This was five years in development of this film and um, they worked on it a lot. Obviously, it's also. You know, we're we're not featuring Board Ford here because this is actually um, a Harrison <laughs> Ford produced this as well and was quite involved. Oh, okay. But you you often wonder, and and you know, because I I agree with you. I, I I don't think this this works particularly well overall as a film, and you just do wonder whether they were almost so close to it, you know, that they weren't they weren't spotting the 
those obvious things like the fact that, um, you know, for a modern audience, you know, watching this in 2002 when it was released, um, you, you, you know, many, many of those people, you know, us included, um, you, you know, we, we grew up, you know, sort of after the Cold War thing and weren't necessarily, you know, may, maybe they were so close to this that they made this massive assumption that people would know, oh, because it's set in 1961, you know, those tensions. Well, no, actually, actually, you're wrong. We grew up sort of the end of the Cold War. Because yeah. I remember during the 80s, there was still not so much the Red Scare, but the nuclear scare. And I remember seeing stuff when I was young, like War Game. Not War Game. Not, not the Do You Want to Play a Game? Mm-hmm. But there was this BBC uh, sort of mock dec- documentary about what would happen if there was a nuclear explosion in, in a major Yes, I city. remember that. Yes, yeah. There yeah. was also Fred's. Mm-hmm which I, I saw again recently. Oh, my God, that is that is a tough watch. And there was also um, the American miniseries as well, which had, like, Steve Guttenberg and a lot of other actors. I think it was, like, the day after. Oh, yeah, the, mo- the morning after, I think it was. Yeah, the, or the, yeah, the day. Yeah. I, know, I know the one you mean. It was, it was yeah, it was yeah. a horrible sort of depiction of um, post-nuclear war. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and let's not forget when the wind blows oh, as well. An animation, you know, by the same guy who did the snowman. There, there, there's a contrast. Eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was very aware growing up of of the nuclear threat. Yeah. And kids today, they are not aware. I mean, it's still there. I mean, you have uh, North Korea testing, uh, you know, missiles and their range are getting further, you know, is longer and longer. And they're also, they have a nuclear program. You know, I mean, hearing the news again recently, the amount of times that they nearly fired Trident. Mm. They said there was like 18 times we, we came close to actually one of our Trident miss- missiles being fired by mistake. Yeah. That's crazy. Scary times. Yeah. Oh, it, absolutely. Because the, the thing about, watching any post-apocalyptic films that we watched a lot i know i have mm-hmm. is that once you hit that button and those missiles go flying that's it that is it yeah there is no coming back from that and it, 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 it you know if you thought brexit was bad this is a this is a hundred <laughs> times worse than brexit you know because this would change the face of the earth for, forever you know yeah no absolutely so you get that kind of tension in crimson tide but you don't get it in this. I mean, one of the parts of this that does kind of work is um, the, the 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 sort of you know, hence why they do the thing when they're older years later. But the mm. um, the, the 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 built friendship between Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson's character, um, yeah, you know that comes yeah. across. And I think you know they they were trying to obviously be very respectful um, to to the story and to the uh, to the bravery of of. of of the crew involved but um mm. uh it, but it is weird how it is kind of a lackluster i actually remember but yeah. we're back to uh, sorry but we are back to keith's story again because this does have some relevance <laughs> K- k19 the widow maker was actually the first film that i ever saw at bafta okay i'd, I'd okay. got the that was the same year I'd, I'd got my bafta membership i'd obviously come back from the us the year before and um I went to see this and it was they had Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson actually doing a Q&A afterwards. And I remember weirdly, 
I ended up sitting next to Clarissa Flockhart. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. This, which was weird, but it just happened to be where I was sitting. And they, they whenever they do a QA, and a they kind of bring the uh, guests in afterwards and she just sort of came mm -hmm. and plonked next to me i was like oh it's it's ali mcbill there you go <laughs> but uh, as she as, as she is finn in real life as she is on screen oh yes very much so very much so um but perfectly formed but no i'm i i mean I, I, i'm loving i'm loving i'm going off topic totally now but i'm loving what she's doing in um in supergirl at the moment as cat grant oh, okay. uh uh in this another guilty pleasure there you go but anyway um so yeah um but i remember they came and and, and obviously uh you, you know they, they, they there was a q a but it, it was kind of you know even with that this you, you'd think that this film I'd, I'd actually forgotten until we went and revisited this i'd forgotten that so that that says something right there about how <laughs> it's not one of the ones that, that really sort of um dragged me in and made me think wow you know and i think th i think actually if i remember right harrison ford got kind of annoyed in the Q&A because of course somebody it wasn't me I will hasten to add but somebody oh, had right. to bring up the Star Wars connection because he and Liam Neeson ah, were right. on stage and 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 I remember Ford he, he, he was he was bored Ford at that point he, he did get a little bit annoyed about that and understandably so because of course he was there to talk about this movie which he he produced as well but um um, oh, do you mean there was a fanboy in the audience? I think there might have been. Yeah, yeah, you know, but uh, <laughs> it, it was just kind of like, oh, I mean, I groaned as well, even as as a fanboy myself. I sort of groaned and mm. thought, oh, that's not appropriate for this, but whatever. <laughs> no, saying that, you do get, you know, you get Qui-Gon Jinn and Han Solo <laughs> in the same film. Yes. <laughs> But uh, and, and Bigelow sadly yeah. wasn't there. I mean, I was lucky enough. She came to do a Q&A at uh, Zero Dark 30 a few years back. So I did get to see oh, her yeah. speak. And she's a fantastic speaker at those sort of things. She's very good. But um, but yeah, th this film, I mean, again, a lot of work went into it. I know they kind of they kind of sort of took the camera and approach of actually building the sub rather than trying mm. to do everything with with CG or miniatures. They actually um, kind of took a a life-size um, Juilliard-class sub, and actually extended it and um, and and put a new top on it, and to make it, you know, resemble exactly um, the 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 K nineteen from from that period. Um, and you, you know, I, I think the film, in terms of production values and everything, is is, is very good. Um, but I I agree with you. I mean, the the, the bit that works is Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson and, and their, their kind of on-screen relationship and chemistry there. Um, I think Peter Sarsgaard's very good in this film also. Um, yeah, I mean, he has a kind of interesting story arc in there. He's, um, he is brought in to be the main engineer on the, uh, on the uh, radio, um, the reactor. And let's face it, a job no one wants. <laughs> no, but I mean, the fact is he has no experience. He is literally just graduated from nuclear school. So, but uh, he, when they first go in to repair um, the reactor, he chickens out and another guy takes his place. And then later on in the story, the reactor breaks down again and he's the only one there. So he actually goes in, he mans up and he goes in. And of course, uh, he he certainly pays for that. 
and uh but i mean but yeah he he kind of like he's really the only kind of character in there that goes for some sort of you know story arc. yeah well i mean it's horrific to think i mean you know this is actually based on 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 true events yeah. and uh you, you know oh god can, can you imagine i mean uh you, you know it's it's you, you think about it it's claustrophobic and horrible enough to be under submersed underwater and in, in, in you know in this vessel but then when you think yeah. that it's also a vessel that is leaking radiation it's like i can't think of anything worse you know i mean that is that is that is hell right there and um <laughs> is, i think yeah. sometimes they maybe didn't necessarily get the horror of that across as much as as much as the film perhaps could have because because i do mm. i do sort of agree with you it is a bit you use the term meh at the beginning yeah. and that is kind of how i felt a little bit watching it, it it's you, you can appreciate so many things about it i mean you, you know you can see the craftsmanship and you can see it's well made and you know it's 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 reasonably well acted i know people have criticized you know um ford and neeson for their for their accents and stuff but you know forgiving that um <laughs> you, you know it's good but but ov overall it does have a kind of like yeah yeah okay you know quality and um it's a shame to think that and i'm not entirely sure why that is um i i, I maybe they didn't play enough on the horrific aspects of it perhaps. no i think again it's because you've got to care about your characters when when you put characters through that you have to care for them and that's the thing that does boat does very well is that you get to know these characters and you get to care for them. So when they're in those tense situations, you, you're you there with them. And the problem with this film is that we didn't really get to know anybody. And also the fact as well is that we knew it was doomed from the beginning. Mm. So, you know, you're just sort of waiting for that to happen. But there's no kind of suspense. Yeah. I, I again i mean i don't know why I, I i go back to crimson tide because it does that very well you know yeah oh no absolutely i mean it's far more popcorn but yes it does it but it does do that yeah, yeah but i mean it does it does that whole because it, it explores a situation where you know you've got your finger on the button and should you press it or not mm -hmm. you know yeah because if you press it you're going to start world war three you're going to start a nuclear war and you know, there's a reason why nobody fires these things at each other because it's because of MAD, which is a mutually assured destruction. Mm -hmm. You fire one, they fire one, and nobody's surviving this. There's no winners. Hence why there's like stockpiles of these damn things because, every, you know, there was the nuclear race. Oh, we have to have more than Russia. Oh, we have to have the more than the States. It bankrupt Russia. I mean, the end of the, the Cold War was the fact that Russia couldn't pay for all this. They couldn't pay for their military. And that's why it fell apart. And so I guess they were going for that angle with the whole sort of cost cutting on the whole sub itself. But the problem is you see, when you see that up front, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... so when it happens, it's inevitable. I mean, if it was if you didn't know any of that and you just concentrated on the characters, or maybe even just from one point of view, because you've got to remember, there's lots of point of views going on in this film. Well, there are. I mean, apart from, this is this is perhaps one of the problems as well as apart from 
Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson and, and uh, Peter Sarsgaard. Um, the 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 rest of the crew, the rest of the characters, we don't really get explored at all, do they? I mean, we, no. we have that one no. bit, like you said, with the potential mutiny um, where the, uh, the the second officer, et cetera, steps up. But um, but yeah, there, there, there really isn't much of that. And um, yeah, it is kind of. You, you you don't you don't have the crew uh defined particularly on this yeah. and um yeah. uh like you said you know in that kind of environment you, you you've got to care about everyone and uh you, you know this this is quite a, literally a, you know a harrison ford liam neeson vehicle um and uh yeah yeah i, I you know i don't i don't look at it and think oh that this is this is a bad film or this is awful or anything like that i just look at it and think that it's 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 another one of her canon that's a little bit forgettable yeah and as i said i didn't even remember until you know watching it again that this was the the first film i ever saw at bafta at a bafta screening which you know how much i love my bafta screenings and i and i've and I've forgotten it's it's, it's like it's like you'd never bring it yeah up. well you know it, it's it's all done with love <laughs> but um but yeah it, it, it's just yeah. kind of um yeah it's 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 an interesting film but it's it's not yeah it's just not stand out and it's it's interesting you know um since this she she's got she's gone on to do film that again there was another gap but then she did go on to do films that that, that did have notable acclaim for her that's right yeah I mean, she came back in a big way to the Hurt Locker. Yeah. And then Zero Dark Thirty and then uh, whatever the uh, next project is. We're due one uh, next year in 2017. Very interested to see what she see what that one is about. Exactly. You know, it'll be good. Um, she does like to spend, again, again you know, she, she does spend a fair amount of time in, in, in development, um, which rather than just sort of knocking them out one after another, which uh, which is a good thing. But as I said, it hasn't worked on all of them, unfortunately. <laughs> no. So, any finishing thoughts about Catherine Bigelow? Ah, uh, no. Just that I, I, I want to see more from her. You know, because she, she is a really, really great filmmaker, and uh, it's been nice, been nice to talk about her. So, yes. Oh, definitely. And good uh, on you, Catherine. Say, <laughs> <laughs> very happy to see uh, what she does next. I'll be. Uh, interested in seeing that film so we're going to end this episode in our normal fashion so keith where can we find your work okay if you go to youtube and put in british isles that's e-y-l-e-s as in my last name um there is there are films that i've made that you can view there uh also if you want to see other things that i've been involved in uh, if you go to imdb and put in my name keith isles e-y-l-e-s um there's there's a list of some of the work there uh plus i will keep you updated as to any screenings that happen to uh that i happen to get with the with the next project which is doing the festival circuit and what is that project called it's called taste there you go <laughs> thank you <laughs> so keep an eye out for it you can check out my work at independentrunnings.com you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher youtube and all good podcast providers please follow us on facebook and twitter just search movie heaven movie hell and uh, if you're on itunes and stitcher 
please leave us a re review and a rating. It all helps. Trust me, it does. Anyway, so uh, that's it for this episode. And uh, I hope you join us for the next episode of Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. <laughs>